Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and you're listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 21, which I'm calling Hamilton and Applying Ideas for Life. Um, today, I'm back in, in Bali. I think this is my second trip around the world in the month of November. I'm spending my uh, Thanksgiving, unfortunately, away from my family. Uh, I'm up in Nusa Dua, if you know the Bali area near Uluwatu, uh, and I'm doing some events with our Australian and New Zealand business partners that have been really amazing. Last night we had a big party on the Uluwatu Cliffs, um, which are gorgeous. I posted some photos on social media, uh, celebrating some some people who've built a, a business we recognize as Diamond, a very high level in our business, and. Um, you know, it's it's great to be meeting with uh, some of our younger leaders who are doing big things with uh, nutrition and and uh, and building higher quality, uh, more sustainable businesses. We just had a great night last night. It's not easy to be away from home, but there are times when, um, in my family, we've learned to sacrifice the immediate uh, things we like to do because we know we'll have great times together. Um, before coming here, I was with my wife, Sarah, in New York uh, for almost a week with some of our Japanese leaders and some good friends, Glenn and Iris Rogers, um, again, celebrating uh, Amway Japan's 40 years in the business. And some of our leaders who've been around uh, for, for as long or almost as long. And uh, so it's just it was a great time to get together. In fact, um, New York was such a blowout. This is kind of one of the things I've come to love about our business are just the experiences you get that you can't find other places. Um, among other things, we had breakfast literally at Tiffany's. <laughs> if you've ever seen the Audrey Hepburn movie, um, it's a little different. We went to the private salon where they used to design jewelry, still do, I think, and um, and where they take you know people who make big purchases. And uh, they had this amazing uh, breakfast created for us there where we got to understand the history of the company, how they make their jewelry. And my favorite part, the banker's room, where (laughs) they would put husbands historically who have this full bar, small room, one chair, and it used to be one little uh, telephone, you know, one telephone on a pedestal. So the guy could make some cocktails while his wife bought very expensive jewelry and then call the banker to have funds transferred to, to Tiffany's. <laughs> I just found that absolutely kind of hilarious, ridiculous, and uh, um, also very thoughtful on Tiffany's part of the of the husband who'd have to be sitting there watching the family, the family jewels literally being created. Um, so we had a great time in New York. And one of the things that uh, I love about our business is we have business partners we work with you know, literally from all over the world. And so when we were there, we also met up with Tony and Francis Papalardo, who you've heard on this podcast before. Um, but Tony and Francis hooked us up with Hamilton tickets. And so I was really moved by um, not only the Hamilton Broadway musical, which, you know, it probably isn't historically terribly accurate. There's a lot of inaccuracies in it, but it's a great depiction of Alexander Hamilton and gave me new respect for him. It actually got me to um, start reading, I haven't finished it yet, but start reading the Ron Chernow biography of called Alexander Hamilton. And I guess the thing um, uh, that, that it got me into was uh, thinking about my own story. And I'll get into that later, but, um, and go back to my own story a little bit. But, you know, the, the concept of bringing ideas to life, creating your own narrative, creating the person you want to be, creating the world you want to live in, um, and, and the, the, the difficulty, significance, and importance of bringing ideas to life, which Alexander Hamilton did in re- very real and, um, and, and unusual ways. Uh, you know, I won't get into his whole story right now, but he was born an orphan in the West Indies, you know, down in the Caribbean, and then later helped form 
are, uh, the United States, the nation that I live in. So um, before we get into that, I want to quickly remind listeners that this it, this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. It's all about breaking through barriers in our own lives. It's about creating the lives we want, uh, choosing ourselves. So you don't have to wait for someone else to pick you. You can choose yourself, I like to say. And, um, and not limit ourselves to the opportunities other people create for us. Creating your own opportunities. Um, a few highlights. So, you know, I, I talked about some of the things in New York. Um, we also ended up, I think this was a bigger highlight for my wife than for me. Uh, a friend of ours, Dan Adler, uh, helps us get the right entertainment for these types of events. And Dan brought Elvis Costello, uh, who many, many of you know if you're a little older like me, and is one of my wife's, like, early favorite musicians. And then Ron Ronson, um, um, Mark Ronson who's a famous DJ. So we had this fantastic evening of music. We just had a great time. And you get to, you know, getting to spend a personal time with Elvis Costello, being able to be at these events and celebrate with with our leaders who've worked very, very hard to be there. Um, staying in Central Park South, you know, being able to walk, you know, the morning after a snowstorm in Central Park when it's sunny and the leaves, the, the fall leaves are still up and there's snow on the ground. It's just absolutely remarkable. We went to the Warhol exhibit, Andy Warhol's 30-year retrospective. Um, we went to the Frick Collection, which is on the Upper East Side in the 70s. Just an amazing um, private collection, small museum, former you know home of uh, I think it was Henry F- Henry Henry Frick. Anyways, beautiful little museum. Just had a great time. Saw some saw some old friends from school. Um, Kathy and Jeremy Treat. Just just had a fantastic time in New York. Can't recommend it enough. Um, and then we also took some of our Japanese distributors to the Brooklyn Bowl. Uh, if you haven't been to Brooklyn or been to the Brooklyn Bowl, you know, it's it's a great experience. It's a hipster bowling alley that is a ton of fun. And one of the things that I'd kind of hadn't been to Brooklyn in a little bit um, was just seeing all the street art that's been created in Brooklyn where, where the city decided to free, you know, the culture to the youth. And they have created... An environment that is unbelievably uh, artistic and and uh, and growing and vibrant and just a, a beautiful place to spend time. Um, so, anyways, we had a great time when we were in New York. Uh, we even did a cruise down the Hudson to the Statue of Liberty with a with a group of some of our uh, more mature leaders, and. Um, and we went to the Village Vanguard. I mean, there's so many amazing things to do. If you go down to the East Village, uh, one of the best places to see jazz, in my opinion, in the city is the Village Vanguard. Uh, it is. It was just unbelievable. Um, so we had a great time in New York. But the highlight for me, at least uh, philosophically, was seeing Hamilton and rereading, you know, getting into Cherno's book and thinking about Hamilton and connecting that to my own life story and where it's gotten us. How we're able to be in New York and have these great experiences together um, with with business partners who are also great friends. How we were able to, um, you know, now I'm back in Bali, fifth time this year, um, celebrating with Australian New Zealand uh, business partners their success, and um, I'm going to uh, Guangzhou before I head home again. But um, it's it's been a remarkable year, and this has been a remarkable month, and I wanted to reflect on that a little bit and be thankful for it. Uh, this now the the just just the day after Thanksgiving here in Bali, still Thanksgiving in the United States. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for the people that I work with at Amway, and I'm, and I'm incredibly thankful for our business partners, the volunteer army that, uh, that make our business possible, that own every penny of our revenue, and put out a tremendous amount of effort um, to help us all make, this, make our business and our lives work so well. 
So let's get into Alexander Hamilton. First, if you haven't read Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow, or if you haven't seen the musical or, or listened even to the soundtrack, strong recommendation. Um, it's uh, Please put on your list of things to do. Uh, if you don't know American history or could use a little brush up on who Hamilton was and his place in the American Revolution shaping our Constitution, um, and not, in fact, not only our Constitution, but our, our entire form of federal government, uh, here's a quick primer. I've kind of pulled together. You, by the way, you can go to Wikipedia, which does a good job of kind of balancing what you might see in the musical, which isn't terribly accurate. You know, they had to shorten uh, Hamilton's life down to, you know, to 90 minutes of singing um, <laughs> versus Ron Chernow's book, which, you know, has a lot of his opinions in it and and uh, and is good is a good biography, um, but is, is disputed by other historians who have different opinions because, um, as Chuck Klosterman says in his book, What If We're All Wrong? You know, in 500 years, we're all going to be wrong about almost anything. And history is, um, you know, it's, it's a tough science. It's, uh, you know, typically victors write history and, um, and we forget things and uh, memory is fungible. And, and so uh, I just recommend getting in, into the, the Alexander Hamilton story and, and taking it as a story, as a part mythology, part history, and part uh an incredible life, a life that has shaped who we are in modern America. Um, so uh, let me start by saying that if any of the founding fathers were kick aspirational, and I think they all were in their own unique, unique ways, Hamilton probably created his own life and made his own opportunities and did more of the actual work turning revolution ideas into reality more than any other individual player. Um, I'm going to add some of my own bias um, because when I was a kid, when I was little, we lived in Baltimore and Washington D.C. My dad was going to medical school at Johns Hopkins, and then he had to serve in uh, during you know at the end of Vietnam as a um, major in, in the in the Air Force at Andrews Air Force Base. So we lived near near Washington D.C. Uh, for for a while when I was growing up, and. We used to visit when people would come to visit us. We would take them, you know, on tours of D.C. a lot. So I, we used to go to a lot of the monuments, like the White House. I used to go to a lot. Um, I'd, I've been to, a, you know, I'd been all over D.C. growing up, um, probably in the first six six years of my life, over and over and over again. I could recite, you know, <laughs> a lot of these tours. Um, but the uh, the one thing that I recall was that um, and you can check me on this, but I, I and I'm just this is from memory. I haven't actually done a fact check on this on myself, was that growing up, I, I noticed that Alexander Hamilton was, was one of the few people signing the Constitution who wore a sword to the signing. And I thought that was kind of cool as a kid. You know, here's a dude rattling in there with his sword. Um, but later when I was in college and I was less interested in, um, you know, the strong ideas, uh, basically Hamilton was an advocate for a strong central government where a lot of the, you know, that was the Federalist Papers and federalism, where a lot of the other uh, founders of the, of the country were trying to get away from having a king, and so they wanted more of a decentralized government. Um, so you had, like, Thomas Jefferson leading the anti-federalist kind of, you know, in opposition to that. Um, so I wasn't a big fan in college of the, the Federalist Papers, per se, and the strong government that we ended up with that's created... You know, I would I would argue a lot of problems today. It's also created a lot of success in our country, but we have you know a huge billowing debt. We have um, you know a bureaucracy that makes it difficult to be effective um, as a government and as a people. We have a bipartisan system where people are one of the most dysfunctional governments we've had in a long time. Uh, there's just things that I'm not that happy with. So w when I was in college, and you're more ideological. Um, 
the idea of a um, strong federalism wasn't that appealing to me. I became very interested and active in 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 limiting government, especially federal government, and limiting uh, how long people could be in office, for, for example. Um, so I, I wasn't really interested to pick up Hamilton's biography because I recognized him as kind of the opposition, as the leader of this whole idea of a strong federalism. In fact, he was advocating for the president should be president for life. He was advocating that senators should be senators for life. Um, you know, those are ideas I think many of us have have figured out are, are not great ideas. Um, but at the time, uh, you know, the ideas of having a king and having a house of lords was uh, a model that was very compelling to a lot of a lot of uh, you know, early Americans. And so what I've learned since that time, uh, and, and since picking up his biography and seeing the musical, um, was that perhaps Hamilton got a bad rap. And uh, so here's my very amateur take on Hamilton's life. Bear with me. Um, I'm trying to give you a summary that hopefully will make the rest of this make sense. So if you don't mind, just stick with my, my version of Hamilton's history <laughs> based on my recent viewing of the musical and my Wikipedia uh, <laughs> review, as well as, um, as the book Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. So he was born in St. Croix in the middle 1750s. They don't even know when. Uh, probably 1755, maybe 1757. Um, to say he had a difficult childhood would be the, one of the most mild understatements you could make. Even even based on the, the the middle 18th century, he had an awful childhood in a very difficult place. Um, his mother, Rachel Fawcett, was separated from her first husband, who who uh, literally had her jailed and stripped of her inheritance to prove to her, you know, that she was wrong and needed to come back to him, which, as it turned out, didn't work very well. Um, she ended up moving off St. Croix to Nevis. Was, uh, she lived with a man, James Hamilton, who, who is speculated to be Alexander Hamilton's father. There's other speculations that Thomas Stevens may be his father, although it'd be hard to place, um, it'd be hard to place uh, Rachel Fawcett with Thomas Stevens at the time of, of uh, Alexander Hamilton's uh, conception. So probably not true, but um, she lived with uh, James Hamilton, who was speculated to be his father, but they couldn't get married because she couldn't get divorced. <laughs> Welcome to the middle 18th century. Um, his mother died when he was nine from yellow fever. He almost died, Alexander Hamilton almost died in the same bed with her. And when he kind of came around, they were having the funeral for his mom. Um, he had an older brother, James. Uh, they, they were then given by the courts to his cousin, Peter Lytton, who um, soon thereafter committed suicide, and then he and his brother were split up. And um, James went off to be apprenticed to a local carpenter, and uh, and uh, Alexander Hamilton got uh, was sent off to live with Thomas Stevens. And uh, part of the speculation around Stevens being his father was that Stevens' son and Hamilton um, are said to have looked very similar and had very similar mannerisms possibly just because they were living together, being educated together, but also uh, possibly because maybe Thomas Stevens did have, uh, did, did conceive Alexander Hamilton, which would explain part of the reason why he was maybe sent to the Stevens residence after he was, after his mother died. It was not uncommon for, oh, you know, illegitimate children to be raised by 
their their actual fathers as cousins or or, or stepchildren um, in some sense. So there's a lot of speculation there, unclear, but kind of an interesting side story. Uh, but Alexander proved himself to be both relentless and resourceful in business. He went to work for a, for a, a merchant's company. Uh, he earned an opportunity both because of his hard work as a merchant and because of his writing. He wrote a, an account of a hurricane uh, that hit their island um, that was so popular that the, the, the island put together a collection to send him off to be educated in New York at King's College, which is now be later known as Columbia University, um, although it wasn't quite, didn't have quite the reputation then that it has now. He actually rebuilt King College after the Revolutionary War and, um, and uh, you know, turned into the school that it is today. He was aligned with revolutionaries at King's College, um, and he raised a small militia when he was there called the Hearts of Oak with, resport, with a lot of support from John Jay um, and, and other kind of business uh, and uh, revolutionaries in New York. Um, he was eventually, they, they had some, some early wins in the Revolutionary War. He was eventually selected by uh, George, Washington to be, uh, George Washington to be his aide-de-camp, meaning the assistant to George Washington, doing all of his correspondence, helping set direction and tone for, uh, for the things that George Washington was trying to communicate out to the field. Um, and, uh, and then later, he was given a very influential field command that helped end the Revolutionary War with battles in uh, White Plains and Trenton, New Jersey, and Princeton, New Jersey. So you know he was a he was very successful during the Revolutionary War. Became very close to George Washington, and a, and during that time, he also um, met and fell in love with and married Elizabeth Schuyler, uh, which was uh, one of Philip Schuyler's daughters, a prominent Dutch American in Albany, New York. Um, so. Uh, he became um, enmeshed at that time, not only in the battle for American to be free from British rule, but also in many of the battles among revolutionary thought for how the young country ought to structure itself in post-independence. Alexander Hamilton is one of the most prolific writers of all of the all of the revolutionaries, all the founding fathers. Uh, over twenty-two thousand pages he, uh, are, have been collected that he's written, and his thoughts have shaped a lot of the ideas we have today. So. Um, Hamilton, uh, you know, so he married well, married Eliza Schuyler. Um, they had, I think, over eight kids together. Um, and, and he married into a prominent family. And then when he was working for George Washington, he aligned with John Jay and James Madison. And they wrote what became the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers basically pressed the country to have a constitutional convention to form a, a more structured federal government so that the country could actually raise money, could pay soldiers who were retiring, um, could put down small rebellions when, when uh, restless soldiers who weren't being paid rose up, and probably rightly. Um, it, it, was, it was a trying time. And if you think about the French Revolution and the series of revolutions they had after the initial revolution, uh, part of the reason that America didn't have a series of counter-revolutions and continuing revolutions like you know, the Whiskey Rebellion that happened because of attacks on whiskey when we didn't have a strong federal government, um, part of the reason we were able to survive was because we did create a federal system that empowered the government to have at least enough power to have an army, to raise money, to have a banking system, and to and to support the country hold, keeping itself together. Um, so the Federalist Papers really argued for this strong central government, a national army, federal treasury, 
um, and organized not only how it operated, but how the government was seated. Um, you know, typically, originally during the constitu- during the, 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 the revolution, most of the action was happening in Philadelphia and New York. Part of the negotiation that Hamilton made with Jefferson was to move, um, and I believe Madison, I can't remember, I think it was Jefferson and Madison, was to move the seat of government down to, the, to, New, to Virginia, to Washington, what is now Washington, D.C., um, so that the southern states felt more connected to this federal body that they had bought into as states. It's, it's, it's important to note that in the United States, you know, we didn't have a king that we overthrew, so we didn't have a federal system that existed before the revolution, before we founded our country. We had a series of colonies that became states that granted powers to the federal government and retained all the powers they didn't grant because those powers originally resided with the states. Um, and so that's part of the reason we had a weak federal system. And there were a lot of arguments about whether we should be a, a confederacy or whether we should be a federal system or what kind of government we should form. Um, Thomas Jefferson, who's very famous also as a founding father, former president, uh, was among the leading anti-federalists. Now, if you think about this, so he was, um, r- rather than a, a new central government focused on industry, banking systems, and a strong military, the what we affectionately call the military-industrial complex today, um, he was a rural Virginian, and then you know there were some also a lot of all of the South was based on an agrarian uh, ideal, um, also on slavery, and so for the South, they wanted they were the bigger states. Virginia was the biggest state at the time with the biggest economy. They wanted less federal power, more less central power. They wanted more control, and they wanted to focus um, the 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 rule of law. To the you know giving it to the state so that they could maintain what they had rather than shift to uh, more of an industrial manufacturing and and credit and banking system that's required if you're going to be doing that much uh, manufacturing and that much tooling. Um, so there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of discussion, um, and and part of the idea was um, whether colonies or states had retain those powers, retain those rights. Um, some of it had to be prosecuted later uh, in a civil war. If you remember, you know, a lot of people think, well, the civil war was about slavery. And, and it was. Um, you know, that was a secondary cause. But the primary cause of the civil war was secession, was whether or not states had the right to exit the federal government. Um, you know, unfortunately, the founders didn't put an exit clause in that constitution. <laughs> and so when the southern states decided, well, we don't, we don't like this federal government anymore, we're going to leave, Abraham Lincoln had to prosecute that idea rather than just argue about it. He had to prosecute it with a war. And Lincoln realized that if he lost the war, he'd be hung for suspending the Constitution. So there's a lot of things that are playing into later major actions that the U.S. had to, had to work its way through that Jefferson and Hamilton are working through as early ideas that I think are profound. And when you see how Hamilton works through these, it becomes really important. Um, Hamilton, as I said, he wrote you know, an immense body of work, over 22,000 pages, one of the biggest writers, most pro- prolific writers, um, as he worked for Washington and as he helped form the government as a constitutional, um, as, as one of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, as a representative of the state of New York. And then later, he served as the first Treasury Secretary for Washington as Washington became the first president of the United States. So he, he was very influential in forming our banking system and in, in uh, creating new treaties with how we traded with Britain, um, and, and you know, an, an immeasurable number of of, uh, of institutions that rule life in America today created the banking systems we use, the federal 
the Federal Bank, the 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 New York Bank, which still exists today. We're all we're all created by Alexander Hamilton's brain and his effort. And so it took in a tremendous amount of work. And um, while he was working in this uh, in the summer of 1791, he was working on these important bills for Congress that had to get passed to fund the federal government. And um, so he didn't go with his family on a uh, on a trip north to uh, probably to Albany to their family home. He stayed down in uh, in, in in New York City, um, and during that time, under you know, obviously he had immense pressure and marath. He was doing marathons of writing. Uh, he met and began an affair with a 23 year old uh, named uh, Maria Reynolds. Um, it turned out she was still married. Her husband, rather than and they were separated. But rather than have a duel with, with uh, Hamilton, the husband uh, began extorting him, blackmailing him. Uh, was, was paid $1,300 over a series of, of events <laughs> that Thomas, uh, that, uh, excuse me, that Alexander Hamilton and Maria Reynolds had the series. They had an affair for over a year, and the husband kept extorting Hamilton. Um, his affair and blackmail payments were actually discovered in 1792, so at the end of a, you know, almost the end of a year later. James Monroe, one of Hamilton's political enemies, and then two congressmen, Muhlenberg and Venable. Which, uh, by the way, in the musical, it's it's it looks like it's um, it's other people. It looks like it's Jefferson, I think Burr and Madison, but it's actually it was actually Monroe, James Monroe, who's an anti-federalist. Um, with two congressmen, discovered uh, that there were these payments that that Hamilton had made, and they thought he was embezzling money out of the treasury, so they approached him. And then Hamilton uh, confidentially, you know, and they all agreed to keep this information confidential, showed that he had paid this blackmail money from his own accounts. Uh, it was his own personal money. Um, but he asked that they keep his affair confidential because obviously that would create a lot of problems. First sex scandal in America, Alexander Hamilton. Um, so in, in a few years later, uh, Monroe leaked these uh, information about this affair as part of a political drama. And... Um, that that leaked affair um, became almost Alexander Hamilton and Monroe almost uh, had a duel, uh, you know, a shooting match between gentlemen over over the leak of this information. Didn't come to that. Uh, Alexander Hamilton instead wrote a very long pamphlet <laughs> about it. He was a poet warrior, and um, it obviously put a lot of strain on his marriage to his wife. Uh, she eventually forgave him, but at that time their 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 marriage became very. Chile, and they became isolated from each other. One enemy of Hamilton's then used this information in an Independence Day speech and called into question his children and, and you know, said some things in a political speech that probably in retrospect he, he regretted. But Alexander Hamilton's son, Philip Hamilton, who was 19 at the time, saw this guy, George George Aker, um, at, a, at, a, uh, at a play they got into a very uh, aggressive conversation and ended up um, choosing to duel each other. Alexander Hamilton advised his son Philip um, to be a gentleman and to fire his pistol into the air first, which is called delopement. If you're not shooting at the other person, you shoot it into the air. It kind of calls the whole thing off. Um, neither man shot for a minute. They, when they lined up, they were in uh, Weehawken, New Jersey, where duels happened a lot across the, across the Hudson River from, from Manhattan. They lined up against each other. Uh, neither man shot for a minute. And then um, Eaker shot Philip in his side, and Philip's uh, gun went off into the air, either by accident or intent, 
It's unclear if he actually did try and dump the lope. And the bullet, um, the bullet that entered Philip hit his hip and went traveled up into his arm, and he died 14 hours later, um, the, the following morning. This was tragic for the Hamilton family. Uh, one of his sisters became, uh, you know, really mentally unstable because of it. Uh, eventually, it brought Alexander and his wife back together. Um, but Alexander soon lost his place in government uh, in in Jefferson's new president. Sorry, in John Madison, in John Adams' new presidency, and so he was left in New York to his own devices and and continued. Uh, to write, to be an attorney, to work in banking, and to push manufacturing, and to post slavery. Um, and I think that's kind of important. Part of the reason he was pushing manufacturing so hard was if we could use machines, then we didn't have to have slaves. Um, and based on his experience in the, in the Caribbean, the, bru- the brutality of slavery, and particularly in the, cane, in the, in the sugar industry, um, he, was trying, he was trying very hard to, to eradicate slavery from the Americas. Uh, Hamilton continued to oppose Burr, Aaron Burr, who uh, who happened. Who they went to uni- university together, but then Hamilton didn't like um, Burr's political ambitions. He didn't feel that Burr was a man of principles. And and when Burr ran against Je- Jefferson for the presidency, it was Hamilton who, even though he disagreed ideologically more with with Jefferson than Burr, made it public that he was supporting Jefferson, which which broke the tie. Um, and then, and then later, when um, when uh, when Burr was running for governor of New York again as vice president, um, again uh, Hamilton opposed Burr, uh, wrote a lot of uh, said that he was unfit for service, things that were uh, you know offensive at the time. Today would be kind of I think seen as more normal conversation. And so Burr got really upset and basically. Said to Hamilton that they had to have a duel to settle these affairs of honor, and I kind of find this whole idea of dueling a little bit absurd today. Um, we'll talk more about that in a second, but it's just it's crazy to me that you would have two people decide to, to you know point guns at each other and see see whose bullet you know rings true because they disagree. How does that solve anything besides killing somebody, or maybe killing both people, or maybe killing no one? It's just the most arbitrary, to me, the most arbitrary way to solve a, dis, a dispute. Um, in New, so again, you have Burr and Hamilton going to Weehawk and very close to where um, uh, Alexander Hamilton's son Philip was killed, shot and, and, and or you know was was shot and wounded, later died across the river. But um, uh, again, Burr and Hamilton raised pistols at each other. Burr appears shot Hamilton, and then Hamilton shot his up in the air above Burr's head. Um, apparently, it appears to be he was de- attempting to delope. Um, Burr lived in disgrace for the rest of his life, so it didn't help either of them. And frankly, we needed more <laughs> great minds, not, not fewer. Um, and, and it was funny because Hamilton actually wrote about this duel. He wrote about the risk of death and what that would mean to his family versus his honor and the need to apologize to Burr for his re- remarks. He, I think he was concerned that if he apologized, um, he probably wouldn't be, uh, of, you know, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be picked to be in public office in the future. And it kind of seems odd to me in 2018 that grown men would duel over honor. Dueling these days seems way less honorable than whatever they were arguing about, particularly in this case, about whether or not somebody was fit for office. 
But at that time, honor was essential. And I think especially to a self-made man like Hamilton, a man who, you know, the making of America was intertwined with the making of himself. They were one and the same. And so his honor and the honor of our country, he just couldn't separate that from criticism or, or claims against him. Um, and so for Hamilton, his honor and the nation's honor, he had helped forge were closely intertwined and he couldn't, he couldn't give it up. So when I was in college and I had two majors, philosophy and political science, the reason that I studied both was because I wanted to learn like Hamilton, how do you take the idea and make it real? How do you put that idea into action? Um, and and it was, it was it, philosophy is the raw ideas. Politics is putting those ideas into action, particularly around the idea of how we organize ourselves around power. Um, I've worked for and been involved in a few think tanks. Uh, I've worked for a federal congressman. I've helped let, lead grassroots political movements like term limits, limiting how long members of Congress can be in office. Again, an idea that's at odd with strong federalists like Hamilton and more at home with anti-federalists like Jefferson. And I think, you know, part of working out your ideas is sometimes the things that you do at the beginning aren't what you intended at the end when you see how they get played out. I have no idea where Hamilton would come down today or Jefferson would come down today. Um, but at the time, this is what they thought was true and this is what they were working at. And these are the ideas that they were choosing to bring to life in the ways that they were. Again, I'm going to go back to Chuck Klosterman. What if we're all wrong? In 500 years, we're all going to be wrong about almost everything. <laughs> Let's start there. Let's try some stuff. Let's see what works. Let's not get too closely tied to our ideologies because ideologies haven't been that great for people. And let's focus on how do we support individuals? How do we support make, helping people make the best lives for themselves? Um, you know, being a purist when it comes to ideology is easy if you don't want to accomplish much in terms of real-world application. In fact, the purists who have been empowered, I'd argue, to apply their ideologies in the 20th century have been the most ruthless. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, sacrificing tens of millions of human lives in the pursuit of their ideas via genocide and cleansing programs on their own people. How big do you think your idea is? I mean, when, when an institution, we were talking about Same God and how Larisha Hawkins, a tenured African-American professor, was basically, you know, effectively kicked out of Wheaton College or separated from Wheaton College because Wheaton wouldn't sacrifice its idea of who it is in support of a person who clearly had the same beliefs that they have. What are we doing? It's like dueling. And, and I think we have to be really, really careful. There's a great essay recently called The End of Ideology. I hope we can get there. I hope we can get to a point where let's have some ideas. Let's, put, let's get the best ideas and put them into action. And as we put them into action, let's make sure we're not sacrificing individual people in order to make an idea real. Because the idea probably isn't right if it doesn't have love at the center of it. Um, and so what, I, what I've come to appreciate is that organizations dedicated to predicting, protecting their ideologies at the expense of individual humans are typically missing the point of the application of the idea. After a federal term limits movement hit a brick wall, this, this movement I was leading in the Western states hit a brick wall with Thornton v. Term Limits at the U.S. Supreme Court, a case we lost by one vote, a case where Clarence Thomas wrote one of the best articulated defenses of the Tenth Amendment, defending the rights of states to retain any powers not granted to the federal government, including the right to limit ballot access to federal legislators who stayed too long in office. I threw myself after that back into business, kind of a little bit Hamilton-esque, where I felt like my, my work in government was kind of done for that time. 
my work trying to restructure, um, the, you know, how we how we managed ourselves at a federal level um, seemed to hit a brick wall. And I thought it was a good time to throw myself back into business and into pursuit of supporting the individual with a family of friends. Um, and the and the cause of supporting other people's dreams and support of my own became an obsession. Um, you know, in, in one of the hard stories of uh, the middle 1990s for Sarah and I, when we were in the middle of some very um, difficult years financially, and we had gone into 13, chapter 13 bankruptcy because of an embezzlement issue we had in Venezuela where a business partner taught, stole a bunch of money out of a joint signature account. Um, and it was tied to substantial credit card debt that was in my personal name. So I was on the hook for all this money that was being spent. And one of my partners stole all this money and took it himself personally that I couldn't collect because it was in Venezuela and I was living in America. Um, so we had all of this massive credit card debt that then we had to figure out how to manage. And one of the ways you do that is you go into bankruptcy, not, not to get rid of the debt, but to get rid of the interest, get protection from your creditors so you can pay them back. That's what Chapter 13 is. That's what we chose to do. I always believed in paying my creditors back, even if I'd been wrong. But, but you know, I, I couldn't do it if they were going to keep applying you know, 18% interest on, on the debt that I was paying. And fortunately, the United States has some, has some effective bankruptcy laws to protect people so they don't end up you know, in debtor's prison. And so while we were going through this period of I was still making... You know, I took a job with one of my clients. I was making good money, but we had to pay back this massive amount of debt. We didn't have a lot of cash, free cash at our disposal. And I remembered uh, a really, there's this really particular memory that was very scary to me at the time, um, where we had just sponsored a young business owner in San Jose. We were living up in Napa. And uh, he, was, he was, again, living down in the South San Francisco Bay. And I needed to meet him and some of his new prospects at, a, at an Amway Opportunity meeting to support his business. I had told him I would be there. I had told him when I sponsored him that I would help him. And he was bringing new people to a meeting that I needed to get to. Um, I was working in outside sales as kind of a leading, uh, leading marketing and sales for a former client of mine, and I needed a regular paycheck. Um, the meeting was about an hour south of where I was working, and it required me to drive over a toll bridge, and it took gas. Um, and I didn't have the money to buy the gas or pay the tolls to go to the meeting and get back to our home in Napa. It was you know, probably the end of a pay period. The you know, <laughs> bank accounts were tight. And I just didn't didn't have the available cash to go do that at the time, um, but I needed I knew that I needed to go support him. Um, he was new, he had been working hard, and was counting on me. So I drove south, not knowing how I was going to get back home. You know, dri- you know, literally driving. You know, it's a two it's an hour from where I was working, but two hours from my home. There were a lot of bad feelings I've encountered, and I've had a lot of fear and loss for various reasons, but. One that I hated during the mid-1990s when we were struggling financially was not having money. It's like not having air, not knowing if your checks would clear, having to use you know, paycheck advances to make ends meet, which are very expensive, but if you're disciplined with them, they can be very helpful, and not knowing if I would get rejected by my credit cards or, or debit cards at the local grocery store. Being destitute sucks. Um, grinding poverty often, for a lot of people, freezes them. It freezes them from action. It almost froze me from doing things I needed to do in my business at the time. And it 
can push people into a series and a spiral of bad decisions. You, know, you could use paycheck advances um, in ways that doesn't help you move forward to just fund uh, expenses rather than fuel a business, and you could end up in you know heavy, heavy debt and going bankrupt as a result of it. So there's, there's different things people do. People do make bad decisions when they're under a lot of pressure and don't have money. Fortunately, I was able to associate with great people who could mentor me and help me make great decisions in a time when I needed to make good decisions uh, just to survive. And so I still vividly remember that day when I made the decision to drive to San Jose to meet our new team member at the meeting and support him in explaining how our business worked to his new prospects and, um, and, and offer the support that an upline promises. I tried not to show the growing panic I was feeling about how I was going to get home that night while, while we were at the meeting. And I think the key here is, like Alexander Hamilton, my honor Staying true to my word to support our new team member took precedent over my immediate well-being. I'm not advocating dueling. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me in 2018. But I do understand risking yourself personally, putting your honor ahead of your immediate self-interest, risking something for your honor. Um, a much lighter version of what Alexander Hamilton risked when he went and had his duel with Aaron Burr. The meeting went well. Um, our new guy was excited about his new recruits. And then he said... Hey, David, I almost forgot I owe you $40 from products I bought last week. <laughs> it was felt like a miracle. You can call it coincidence. To me, it felt like very much providential. He handed me the money, and I had one of the most memorable waves of relief <laughs> flood over me at that moment. Um, I probably bought something to eat. I probably hadn't eaten very well that day. I was able to put gas in my car and pay the toll and get home until like, the next paycheck hit our bank. It was a great moment for me. And although I've been very fortunate financially, you know, since then, we've, we've done very well. There are a few times when I've been so relieved and learned so much. Unlike a duel, my life really wasn't ever in danger. But risking something for the values of our business and the integrity of my word, I don't know what that is. That's the hotel I'm in. And we're having some kind of a sound system issue. So, um... Excuse me. Sorry about that. That was a problem with a telephone in the room. I'm staying at the St. Regis in uh, Nusa Dua, which is a great hotel, uh, but maybe the technology got away from us there. So what I'm trying to say is that when I was, um, when I was at this point in my life and, uh, and I, I, had, I had worked through... Um, getting down to San Jose, coming back, risking my honor. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a really big lesson for me in our business. And the reason I was able to make that gamble, to take the risk, was because I had the freedom to make the choice in America. I had the freedom to associate with anyone I chose, regardless of race, color, religion, or political persuasion. Yes, it was a simple economic freedom. Yes, it's maybe not as important as social freedoms or political freedoms or religious freedoms, but it's the foundation of why we have those freedoms. And because I could associate with a new immigrant and help them take advantage of our federal system of free enterprise that Alexander Hamilton created as our first Treasury Secretary with banking, credit, and transfers that allowed me to sell a product and my downline to pay me back via a U.S. currency, a federal currency, you know, not like state banks trying to clear transactions. He had money from a federal bank he could pay me with, and that money from that federal bank allowed me to drive back over a bridge and get home, pay, put for gas in my car, 
and build a business that works around the world. I wasn't in danger of dying that night in San Jose, and I didn't have to overcome being an orphan in the Caribbean, dueling over personal dignity or fighting a revolutionary war. But I did have to make a challenging, scary personal decision. I had to decide to put the interests of an individual in front of my own, in front of, even in front of an ideology, to risk myself a bit for my values, and then to figure out how to make the application of the idea work itself out. I did it that night, and, and, it, and, and it worked well that night, even if it doesn't always work flawlessly every time. So now, when I'm concerned about whether or not I'm personally risking enough to help build a foundation for economic freedom, particularly for people around the world who don't have access to credit, to raising money for a business plan, to the right education, the right career paths, the right family ties, that's when I like to remember Alexander Hamilton, an orphan from the West Indies, who not only pulled himself out of disaster, but built a platform we all benefit from today in pursuit of helping Americans truly become a light to the world. This is an interactive project. This is the Kick Aspirational Project. I hope you're getting as much from this podcast as I am. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback, your thoughts, your questions, your concerns. Please send your message or emails to me. Uh, it's probably best just to hit me up on my Instagram, David, D-A-V-E-E-D-5-8. Or uh, you can try and reach me, too, at, um, at my Facebook account. But those seem to be getting through the easiest. So I, on, on Instagram, just hit me on my account, and we'll try and catch up there. Thank you for listening. Please uh, let me know how uh, I can help, if there's anything I can do, if you have questions or concerns or if you just want to work through an idea. And most importantly, in your day-to-day life, please be kick-aspirational.